Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 189 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week on the podcast, I hosted Ella and Knapp Hudson from Portland, Maine. Ella and Knapp help run the Portland Camera Club, one of the oldest camera clubs in the United States. Ella, Knapp, and myself discussed some interesting topics this week, including their backgrounds and how those backgrounds inform their photography journey, the Portland Camera Club, which was established in 1899, running a successful camera club, how to involve people in making a camera club more successful, the critical infrastructure needed to operate a good camera club, competitions and ideas for them in camera clubs, and much more. Over on Patreon this week, you can join over 140 of your peers in supporting the podcast financially and hear Ella, Knapp, and myself discuss our overlanding adventures and our approaches and how those relate to our photography trips. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Ella and Knapp Hudson, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. I um, found out about the good work you guys are doing up in Maine from Mark Munch, and I uh, took took a look at your website and the the Portland Camera Club website, and it got me thinking there might be some interesting opportunities for us to talk. So here we are. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So 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 for listeners that aren't familiar with you guys. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourselves and where you live and uh, how you got into photography. Well, we live in Portland, Maine. We've been here since the late 70s. We are not from here originally. We're from away, as Mainers like to say. But we really feel like this is home. It's a beautiful state and we love being here. I became a photographer along the way. I have a very similar story to lots of people that my father was a photographer and he, I watched him as a kid in his dark room. He gave me his 35 millimeter camera when I went on my first big trip away from home. And I got really excited because the pictures looked darn good. They were, I was impressed with myself. (laughs) 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 So I ended while I was in college, I talked my way into the journalism school photography class, took what they offered, which was pretty scant. And then once I got out of college, I went to work in my hometown of Florence, South Carolina, as the first college photographer at Francis Marion University. Probably not a school you've ever heard of. It's out in the boondocks. And But I learned a lot. I had a great time. Got married to Nap, moved to Mobile, Alabama, and continued working as a hospital photographer. Oh, wow. I know. Who knew that they had? I didn't even know that was a thing. (laughs) I I didn't either. I didn't go looking for that job. Specifically, it was a, I guess I'd signed up with a kind of an employment agency, and they found me the job. So that was way back when. And then once we moved to Maine, um. I wanted to stay with the medical world because because it was so interesting. And I ended up working as a medical photographer and then transitioned into other things at the biggest hospital in Portland, which is Maine Medical Center. And I learned a lot, saw a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of stories that are not suitable for dinner time. And... Um, <laughs> And that's how I got into photography. And then 
after that, you know, life got in the way, baby came along, um, did some other things in the videography world, and then just transitioned into some completely different thing. And photography kind of got forgotten about until back in early 2000s, we got our first official, really nice digital camera. I was given mm. and uh, then started taking that on trips and, and learning a lot about all the other associated things with, with digital photography, <laughs> which is a lot more than just taking pictures. <laughs> that's true. That's right. Well, before uh, Nap jumps in, I'd be curious, what exactly is a medical photographer do? <laughs> <laughs> And the police yeah. pathologist, police forensic photographers. And... Uh, we uh, okay. Well, in the first hospital, yeah, that was mostly my involvement was with doing, pet, you know, well, printing up pictures for the um, county coroner, which was who was our chief pathologist there. And that was kind of weird. And but the, my right. experience with medical photography was here at May Med because it's a teaching hospital, and they prior to digital, if their doctors were going to speak, and they did all over the world, we had to have pictures for them. And if they did something unusual in surgery, it was a lot of surgical work. We had a burn unit, so it was work there. It was pathological specimens. They used all those slides in their teaching programs for residents, and it was pretty fascinating. I saw a lot. I was going to say, you've probably seen some pretty gnarly stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that makes sense. What, so what about for you, Nap? Well, it was my father's fault also. <laughs> I got involved with photography. He was not a photographer, but he enjoyed taking pictures. That's kind of like the way I look at myself. I'm not a photographer. I just take pictures. And he took pictures. Well, I liked, I looked at his pictures and he was in the army in Germany in World War II. And he took a camera with him all through the invasion of Europe. So I have uh, all these pictures he took during World War II, Battle of the Bulge. Wow. And after that, when I came along and the family going, he worked overseas a lot. So he'd be in Europe and South America for, well, South America for years and years. He had a pretty rough commute <laughs> back to Alabama where we were living. And so he was out in the jungle, up in the Andes, up at the headwaters of the Amazon, taking pictures. And so we had all these slides from him and somewhere along the line, I guess I was probably in, probably in Boy Scouts and going on a big camping outing out to uh, New Mexico and Colorado. And I borrowed one of his cameras and messed around with that for a number of years, probably wore that camera out, lots of slide film run through it. And in high school, I did a lot of work in the darkroom, but it was for um, a school newspaper. 
So mm-hmm. I wasn't doing the photography because we had some really good photographers in our class in school. But I did work in the dark room and got a feel for the graphic arts side of uh, the dark rooms photography. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, after high school, I went into the Navy for a while. I found myself on an island out at the end of the Aleutians <laughs> and gorgeous island. But we were stuck there for a year. There was Once you got there, you didn't leave. Mm-hmm. And although we were working a terrible shift, it was eight hours on, eight hours off, you needed to do something besides sleep in those eight hours we had off. So I bought a camera and went out and started taking pictures around the island. And it was dark room there. And so I became reacquainted with the dark room. Following that, my next duty station was in northern Germany and Europe. I was there for a few years, had three or four cameras by then, another dark room to play in. And so it continued with the film for a couple more years after that. I didn't do anything after I got out of the Navy for a while. I was in college getting a a degree in chemical engineering. When I went to work, I found that was opportunity to use photography in my uh, engineering work and technical work and troubleshooting. Hmm. And so I did that for a while. I even won a a technical award for doing high-speed photography or what the people there thought was high-speed photography, but I knew of Edgerton's work, so I knew what real high-speed photography was. But it impressed this technical group, so I won an award for it. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) And became involved with working with high-speed video. Again, this was years and years and years ago. High-speed video now, you could could go down to uh, almost anywhere and buy a video recorder that could get fairly close to the speeds we were running. Mm -hmm. But it was brand-new, cutting-edge, bleeding-edge, stuff back then, back in the 80s, I guess. So we're talking like 120 frames per second type stuff? And higher. Uh-huh. Onto uh, digital tape. So these huge reels of tape running, I think 120 is about where we started. Mm-hmm. And then we go up from there. And I, my next job, that was working in a, a factory, my next job, I worked in, moved into research and ended up as the manager of a group in a research uh, facility. And I had a f- team, very small team, <laughs> that we needed to solve some problems. And I saw opportunity for high-speed photography and video there also. So we ended up putting together these video systems for high-speed photography running 24-7. And by then, we went working into digital world mm-hmm. and combined with real-time image analysis to defect, detect faults and tr- try to prevent these huge pieces of equipment from breaking down, which was v- extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't doing any... Um, what you think of as normal photography then. (laughs) Um, I did infrared photography, but this was real infrared where we were looking at heat, Mm -hmm. not just clouds turning 
sky is turning black and leaves turning red. We Our sensors were cooled to uh, 200 and something degrees below zero because we couldn't, we couldn't have any heat in the sensors. Wow. So how, did you cool, how did you do that? Using argon gas or nitrogen gas. Okay. Huh. Or actually, they, they were liquid. And, and so the, we used the argon or nitrogen to cool the sensors. And it was it was so sensitive you could put your hand on your desk for maybe less than a second, and several minutes later we could still detect the heat print. Wow, where that That's hand cool. was. <laughs> so it was an interesting field of photography, but didn't relate to what's normally thought of as photography. Right. Yeah. And that's like seeing in the dark is what that is. <laughs> well, well, it was. It was seeing in the dark, <laughs> which yeah. was cool. <laughs> seeing in the dark or seeing things that you normally can't see with working with the high-speed stuff, mm-hmm. high-speed video. That was pretty cool stuff. And along the way with the image analysis, I got my first introduction to Photoshop because we were using that in a real-time mode to do some of these analyses. And the other softwares, I can't remember what they were. But I hadn't picked up a standard camera very much. We did a lot of uh, bicycle riding, tandem bike riding. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple small cameras we'd keep with us on the bike. We usually managed to shake them to pieces. But (laughs) we, we had a Minox 35 that lasted for quite a number of years because it was small enough to put in your pocket. And so it wouldn't get shaken apart riding in the saddlebags. But nothing too serious. No. Mm-hmm. Just tourist stuff. Yeah, just having fun. And then after Ella stopped working as a medical photographer, we lost our free processing. <laughs> yeah, that was a problem. <laughs> that was a problem. And digital hadn't quite come to the point where we were ready to switch to that. And we didn't have a dark room. And we didn't have a dark room. So things kind of went away for a while. And as Ellis said, when digital started getting coming along, we began interest, getting interested in that. And we were going on a long trip. We wanted to we'd be gone for two weeks in China. And we wanted to take pictures again. And we calculated what it was going to cost us for film decided it was easier to buy a digital DSLR, much less expensive. Little did we know. (laughs) (laughs) That was the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) Right. Cameras are the cheap part. (laughs) And so we, at the same time, came back together with photography, digital photography, although I was still doing digital video at that time on a personal level. And after this trip to China... I saw what Ella was doing with the digital still camera. I put away my uh, video camera and basically left it. Yeah, it's still sitting there. It's sitting (laughs) sitting there where I put it back in the early 2000s. Although I have come back to video recently because the the SLRs or mirrorless cameras now are getting so good with video. So playing with that again. And again, back to high-speed video. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, before we dive into um, camera club discussion, I would I was hoping you could talk a little bit about 
the role that photography plays in your marriage. <laughs> in our marriage? <laughs> yeah. Is it because um, my wife is not interested in photography at all, and I would, I would, I'm just guessing that it that it's it plays a part in terms of you know all the activities you do together, things of that nature. So I'd just be curious what role it plays. Yeah, you're right about that. It does. It um, it's probably right now our our all purpose, all consuming hobby, um, passion, interest, learning opportunities, zooming opportunities. <laughs> you name it. Um, we've we've uh, kind of embraced it wholeheartedly, and yeah. not only has it been like a good good time, it's caused a lot of rows. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you just think you can share a lens with, lens with somebody. <laughs> That's just one thing. Sharing uh-huh. lens, learning techniques in the software, you know, you have different ideas and whatever, but we've managed to travel a lot. We've traveled a lot, uh, traveled a lot with the Munch workshops. Um, that's all that we've learned a lot. We kind of took up, we didn't know anything about landscape photography. So we started in with them to learn about that and learned a lot about software along the way, met a lot of wonderful people. Ella was much better or much more comfortable photographing a body in the morgue than she was <laughs> photographing a mountain. <laughs> you know, you learn different stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I would also guess that uh, you'll take, I'm guessing you'll take each of you would take a photograph and you really love it. And the other person doesn't like it, and it turns into an argument. <laughs> well, no, really. Sometimes what happens is we're out in some gorgeous spot, and we take a picture, and one of us will feel much more emotional about that picture or feel like we've really done a good job. And basically, the minute we get back together, we say, I hosey that one. You can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so you're competing over the same shots. Yes, yes. we'll be competing <laughs> on the same shot. And the one that says, this is mine. Gets it. They, they get it. And we've, I think, We've always honored that. Yes, we have. We have always honored that. The only time I don't honor that typically is if we're out and I'm shooting with my iPhone and I can process it and upload it quicker. I, I do it. He can come along and upload his big boy camera one. That's fine. <clears throat> but I have my little, my early snap. <laughs> that sounds like it's cheating a little bit. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes we'll do this. This will happen when we're traveling. So I'm driving. Oh, yeah, of course. And it gets quiet. The passenger seat gets suspiciously quiet. (laughs) And I know she's she's busily processing and uploading a picture. As long as it's internet. (laughs) Yeah. Do you guys, I'm curious, do you guys find that your style of the things that you're drawn to is similar or is there some divergence there? I don't, I don't think we're terribly similar. Well, there's we're both somewhat eclectic. Um, we don't specialize. We well, I don't say, know if that's true. You like to specialize in black and white. Well, yeah, I do a lot of black and white. I do a <laughs> bit of infrared, and I aim try to get pictures that are simple. Uh, there's only so much I can handle. <laughs> My brain can handle. Ella get, tends to be much more creative. She does a lot of compositing work. So 
a good bit of her photography the last couple of years has been harvesting images and pieces <laughs> of stuff that she's going to build into something else. Maybe that's just because I can't get one good picture. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Well, so how did you guys get involved with the Portland Camera Club? And maybe that would be a good time to talk a little bit about the history of that camera club because I was super surprised to learn that it's been around since 1899. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, well, we knew about the camera club and it's hard to find time to go to meetings and all that kind of stuff when you're working and having to fix supper. And um, we'd, we'd done some photo walks with some of the camera club people. They said, Oh yeah, come on, come on. We are like, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe we're not sure. And then we also got involved with the main photography show, which is a yearly call for entries from people who live in Maine or maybe some are in Maine, have a, have an address. You have to have an address in Maine Mm -hmm. and they have a juror and you enter up to three pictures. And if you're, if you're selected, they end up selecting about a hundred images out of somewhere between 800 to 900 entries. And those are printed and you take them to this little gallery and there's a gallery show and there's a big reception. It's quite fun. And um, we've met a lot of photographers through that. And one of the camera club members was on the steering committee and she really pressed us. She browbeat us. (laughs) And by that time we were, we were more retired than working all the time. So we said, sure, we'll go check that out. So that's what we did. And as Ella said, we we can't remember how long we've been in the camera club. It isn't all that long compared to some members who've oh, been yeah. there 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, we have some lifetime members. <laughs> <laughs> Basically their whole life. <laughs> That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. Yep. And so the camera club, it, it meets every Monday night, September through uh, the first part of May. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when they were meeting way back in 1899, how often, but they were associated with the museum there or the art society and had a dark room and some studio rooms in the building that was also the Portland Art Society, which which morphed into the Portland Art Museum. And um, so 1899, and they had... I know of one former member and whose name is Francis Orville Libby. And he was a pictorialist. Well, he was a painter. And then he became interested in pictorialism and photography mm-hmm. and, and did some, his work was all fairly large gum bichromate images on paper. Mm-hmm. And he would, to some degree, I'm not sure if some of them were composites or whether he would just draw, you know, smudge and work the gum bichromate to create moons or moonbeams or things like that. They were in shades of blues, dark blues, greens, and some grays. And when he died in the 60s, I think, he, um, well, I should, I should back up and say he was very prolific in the 20s and went to all kinds of exhibitions, salon exhibitions, Boston, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Chicago, 
I mean, London, it was Paris. yeah, London, Paris. He was it was a big deal for these clubs. These clubs did this. Um, he was also a member of the Royal Photographic Society in England. In England, mm-hmm. so his when he so when he passed away, his family had all these pictures. They did not know what to do with them, and they came to somebody in the camera club and said, "Do you want them?" And they did. So they took them. They had them in a plastic bag, stored in a kind of an attic, <laughs> um, and. Someone somewhere along the line got a person to val- to val- put a value on them, and lo and behold, at that time they were valued at a thousand dollars a piece, fifteen hundred dollars a piece. They had some really significant value. So then it was when I became a member, I got involved with trying to find homes for mm-hmm. these valuable photographs, and and. Really, they we've still got some. We still need to find homes. We've sold some. We've had shows with them. We've mm-hmm. um, uh, we had an auction, put entered them in an auction at Swan Gallery in New York City. More that's the most recent, and they they've lost the value that they claim to have whenever they were valued that first time. But there's still a very interesting historical record of what photography was at that time. And what right. the camera club was doing at that time. Yeah, and what the camera club was doing. It's kind of an interesting look back at where the camera clubs came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was right before, you know, the era of Ansel Adams and, yeah. and all that. So that's that's kind of right before that. And his work was in reaction to this group of pictorialists. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. F64. <laughs> yeah. F64. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if you've read the, um, his biography from Mary street Hollander, but it's actually a super interesting historical account of that whole period. Yeah. The history of photography is quite fascinating. If you ever get a chance to take any courses, I would encourage you to do so because um, I I have done that with the main media workshops here, and they have a wonderful historian, Brenton Hamilton. And you know how everybody says, oh, you know, it's not real photography unless you've taken the picture and it's straight out of the camera and you haven't messed with it and blah, 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 blah. Well, way back in the 1800s, there was a photographer, Gustave Legray. He was French. He was very successful financially. And he took glass, he photographed on glass plates mm-hmm. um, and he did compositing. <laughs> That's that. Right. Yeah. It's been around for a very long time. Yeah. Look through his pictures and you'll see the same clouds. <laughs> he did beautiful seascapes with gorgeous clouds in the sky. And sometimes, and of course, you know, it's slow, you know, the, those were very slow photographs to get. Right, but and but these are beautiful, beautiful skies and beautiful sea, and it was like, how could he get that? Well, he would take two or three and put them together. <laughs> right. He always wanted a sea because he wanted a flat horizon for his masking out of yeah. one of the plates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, that's an aside, but yeah. it's kind of fun thing about the history of photography. Well, yeah. taking three semester course on the history. And she's also, she hasn't mentioned it. She does 
um, alternative process also. So I've dabbled. Yeah, she dabbles, but she's doing sanotypes <laughs> and things like that from pictures she's taken with her cell phone. Now That's think cool. about that. Isn't that absolutely fascinating? <laughs> right. Like a 200-year-old uh, technology with a modern technology. Yeah, the blend of it. You can make uh-huh. a negative from a iPhone picture and then make a cyanotype with a, you know, <laughs> Um, a sandwich type thing. What do you call Contact. it? Contact print. Right. Well, so I have been part parts of a couple of camera clubs in my history as a photographer. And I have, I've definitely seen the challenges of um, kind of running them and keeping people engaged and things of that nature. And I'm sure you've, if you've never had a challenge with that, I'm sure. But oh, no, never, never. <laughs> from your pers- from your guys' perspective, I'm curious, like, what do you think are the ingredients of success when it comes to running a successful camera club? Well, I would say that the first, from my perspective, the first thing is an engaged group of people. And I think some of the times the problems lie with having people at, different levels of expertise Mm -hmm. and trying to have content for beginners and get them excited and then content for people who are advanced and keep them excited. Right. Rather than just always going over the, the same old, same old. So yeah, that, that, that for us, I think is the biggest thing. We, we have a membership of about anywhere from 80 to a hundred people. And out of that, Usually there are about 50 people, 55 people who show up mm-hmm. for, for doing things. And Whether it's a face-to-face meeting or now Zoom meetings, there's still, it hovers around the 50 people. 50 mark, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what did you find as a problem? Oh my gosh. That definitely has, is a problem in terms of just keeping people engaged. I think also finding people that are willing to actually do the leadership aspects of running a camera club. You know, yeah. I remember being at a several meetings here locally where people were, they were asking for volunteers to, you know, be the secretary or help with the website or whatever. And like, nobody raised their hand. And it's like, you realize like we kind of need this in order for this to continue. Um, I laugh I think- because it is our it is our our song too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what are the things that you guys have done to try to overcome some of that stuff? Well, became more involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to look at yourself and then of course everybody's happy to let you do it. Um I don't know what have we done to Well, I tried while I was president to increased participation in committees. And to some degree, I think I was a little bit successful. But again, you know, people might volunteer, but if they don't do the work, who cares if they volunteered? Well, I think that some of the frustration on the part of the leadership of the clubs are expecting people to volunteer. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work that way. You've got to go out and get people. You don't have to uh, Shanghai them necessarily, but you, you've got to be a little forceful about getting participation and go right up and say, I need you to do this. 
Yeah. Will you do this? I will help you do this. <laughs> yes. And we found that that was much more successful than beating your head against the wall, hoping someone's going to come forward. Yeah, just saying we need a volunteer. Mm-hmm. I think the other the other thing that I've noticed, and I might be overgeneralizing, but and I think some of this is just the necess- out of somewhat out of necessity or just reality, but it seems like a lot of camera clubs are predominantly uh, people that are a little bit older <laughs> and usually people that are white. And so uh, I guess my follow-up question might be like how, like what are some ways that we can make camera clubs more inclusive to younger people and people of color and, and, and I don't know, perhaps even women. I don't know if that's a challenge you've seen or not, but uh, wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, that's all, those are all issues. Yeah. We don't have, uh, well, we have no people of color in our club. This year. This year, right. We did have, we had one person of color for a while, a couple of years, and he came with another person. And then I think they. And Marita. Oh yeah, Marita McKenzie. Yeah, we've had two or three people of color then along in our memory. Mm -hmm. But Maine is still a very white state. I was going to say it is Maine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it is, uh, but this is in Portland, which is by far the most diverse area of the state. The Mm -hmm. high school here, for example, has 40 different languages spoken in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder if it's uh, like possible to do outreach to like high schools or colleges or things like that. We have not been successful there. We do have a few more students this year. We have one member whose stepson has come and been very engaged. He's been volunteering and everything, but I know it's in part because of her engagement. And now we have a father who's brought along his daughter. Of course, I haven't met her yet because we're still in Zoom land. Um, But through the main photography show as well, we've tried to outreach to colleges and high schools with not real great success. You really have to have somebody on the inside, we found, that you can go to that will be encouraging to, or like maybe host the photography club in high school type thing. If you can work through somebody like that, you might get get some interest. But in terms of getting an actual high school student to come and go to these club meetings, yeah, that's like, uh, I just don't think they'd be interested unless we were doing lots of going out and shooting different places and teaching them how to do it. We do some of that, but probably not enough for them. How do you, uh, how do you structure your, your club meetings? What does that look like? They run from their two hours with a intermission in between. Um, and we, up until this year, our, when we were meeting for real and not on zoom, we had every Monday was a, in the calendar year was kind of like designated as a special something. So the first Monday was always uh, open, open night for something open that you, we could figure out what to do. Then maybe the second or third Mondays would be tech nights. Then the fourth Monday was be an outside speaker night. So we tried to kind of 
keep it going that way. And then, and then you'd intersperse uh, about every other month, either a digital competition or projected image competition or a print competition. So we were still doing both. And that generates all kinds of additional things that go on because we don't go and seek judges from the outside. We, we self judge. Mm-hmm. So our judges are our, our peer group. And that causes quite a bit of conflict at times. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah. As I, I actually judged um, one of those for a camera club in Denver, which was actually a ton of fun, but I could see how if, if it was not done that way, that could be super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, so that's another thing. So every year we ha- always have sort of a refresher course and, how are we going to judge things and what are the criteria and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing pretty good, I think. I think the it's not so much the judging, it's discussions that have proved to be valuable. Um, as a juror talks about why they gave a, an image a certain score, people like to hear that. Yes. Well, they may get furious with that <laughs> juror too, but... Uh, they're the ones that put it up there for critique. <laughs> and we do yeah, critiques as well, just straight up critiques, no score. Mm-hmm. But there, are, there is always um, a bone of contention about the judging, about how many points should be used. What does that mean? Uh, what's important? Should uh, you get a ribbon or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are those... Uh, do, the, do those competitions come with any uh, prize? The prize is... Bragging rights. Yeah, bragging rights. And mm-hmm. we keep the scores for the entire year. And at the end of the year, the top three contenders in each one. And we do have a class A, class B. Um, so three, six, 12. We give out 12 little... Oh, granite they, plaques. Yeah, little granite oh, uh-huh. things you can use for like a cup holder type thing or cup, um, what do you call those things? Coasters. Coasters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a, the with a logo and the date and that. So, yeah, that's kind of nice. And we would do that at our banquet, which also we've not had one. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have one this year. I doubt we'll have one. Sure. Or last year. We don't have one this year. But people... We've just anytime we discuss dropping the competitions because when people start griping about it, they start griping more because they 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 want to have them. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. They they want to talk about their work and they want a score, but they don't necessarily agree with what they hear or the score. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that would be the benefit of having different judges from the outside, I guess. Yeah, possibly. We just have never gone that route. Well, we, but even with that, because of our involvement with the main photography show where there is an outside juror, you run into the same sort of thing there. <laughs> you know, why didn't he let me in? Yeah. My mm-hmm. picture's better than that picture. Yeah. <laughs> so I think even if we had outside jurors, we'd still have the same issue. So we might as well save the money <laughs> and do it ourselves. But people generally still talk to the jurors after the show is over. So yeah. it's not all that bad. No. No, no nobody's been um, taken outside and drawn and quartered or anything. <laughs> Some might have observed it. But <laughs> yeah. Sometimes well, the 
participants deserve it. <laughs> While we're on the subject of competitions, I, I did see that you have a really interesting concept of a competition on your website that I thought um, had a lot of value because it, I think it stretches the, I don't know, the skill level of the photographer to be more diverse. And it's uh, this one shot competition. Can you, oh. can you tell me a little bit about that? Cause that sounded really interesting. Okay. Well, you, you would probably like it. That, that came back from to the, the history. Yeah. That came from the film world uh-huh. where, okay. So when they, it's, you know, they used to just show slides and have prints and maybe at one time everything was a print. Um, and then one of the members decided that it would be fun to hand out one of those little cardboard box cameras to everybody mm-hmm. and give a list of subjects and you had to do one shot you would you you <laughs> would take your 20 shots or whatever it was you so each one of those categories you got one shot and one of the shots was reserved for a title slide that featured your name and some other verbiage so you had to think up how to get your name your picture and other verbiage onto this piece of slide film and it was typically kind of funny, you know. They, <laughs> <laughs> so then we we didn't get involved in all that until digital land, and so you're cautioned not to do any kind of processing. Don't be taking six shots and picking the best, you know. Please adhere to the general spirit of the competition. Shoot JPEG, not raw. And and they are quite clever and. The people, you know, really do enjoy it. You don't have to enter one in every category. And we have a raft of judges. They kind of break up the judging so that nobody has to judge everything. Because it can be, there can be a lot of pictures. And it is fun. It's a fun night. And even though everybody kind of goes, oh, one shot, one shot. What are we going to do? A lot of people enter and they're always quite clever. And it's uh, a lottery ticket. Oh, yeah, lottery tickets and jam. Yeah, jam and lottery tickets (laughs) are the traditional prizes. (laughs) And how many different shots does someone get? 16? 16 or 20. And they're all based on a different theme or subject. Well, just a different, I mean, it's this one guy puts it all together. And so there'll be, uh, let's say there's 16 shots, you'll have 16 statements. Yeah. And so each image has to relate to one of those statements. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that a really fun uh, photography contest would be more like a reality TV show where you would give, you know, like 10 photographers the same exact camera, the same, same lens. And then you take them all to the same location and you give them like four hours to come up with like 10 really good photos and then they all get judged on that body of work. I think that would be fascinating to see the results of that. That would be that fun. That would be good. That'd be a lot of work. <laughs> it would. We should we should do it on like uh, like on Bravo or something like that. No one shot. Yeah. So see, yeah, sixteen. I was looking at the twenty twenty. Um, so yeah, that's for this year. I guess we're going to do one shot. We have no, a- that's next spring. Yeah, it looked really interesting. June I like that idea a lot. After June 5th, 2019. This is 2020. Oh, anyway. That was last spring. That was last spring. So the for the listeners, example topics would be cars, happy, fuzzy, 
shadow, animal, orange, people working, speed, monument, vegetable, puzzling, downtown, woven, upside down, and crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, wow, imagine, though, like, how much you can grow as a photographer to try to come up with creative ways to portray those ideas. It's not easy. It is. Yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of us, especially landscape photographers, we kind of get stuck in the same ruts. And I think branching out into different types of subject matter can really help loosen up your creativity and be really fun to see what kind of results you can come up with. So I, I like that idea a lot. So you can take that. To, are you currently a member of a camera club? <clears throat> no, nope, I'm not. But uh, every once in a while, I'll go to the local one. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> show up, don't show up. What, what happened to him? <laughs> yeah, but they they ask me to come speak every once in a while. So it's like, well, I don't nice. know. But yeah, sitting through the entire meeting sometimes is painful for me. Yeah. It, I'm. Well, are they two hours long? Ours is two hours long, like I said. Yeah, I think so. And then, I don't know, the most painful part for me was some of the presentations that I've been through. It's like stuff that I have zero interest in. Or like something I'm like you guys are saying, it's like stuff I already know. Yeah. Um, and then they do this thing where they do like an image share and there's no structure to it. It's just like, come bring your photos and show them to us. And uh, yeah. And then it's like, oh, you get to sit through people sharing some, some of them are interesting photos, but then there's like no, I don't know, meaningful discussion about the photos or anything. So I don't know. Just, I didn't get a lot out of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and we have all those same issues. We've uh, done one of the things that I think has been was very well received, and maybe I think people got something out of it was we split up into different little groups. And at one table, it was all about wildlife photography. At my table, it was processing landscape photography, particularly skies in Lightroom and Nick. Uh, one lady did stuff with iPhone and different um, apps on the iPhone. So you get the idea. And you'd go from table to table talking. Yeah, that's, I mean, obviously coming up with a really fun, engaging camera club requires some thinking. <laughs> it does. And then some action. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah, exactly. Well, what are we got, what, we got a lot of directors and thinking? We need more action. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are some other membership benefits to for the camera club that you belong to, and in your in your mind, like what is what are the reasons why people typically keep coming back? I think they like talking to people. It's. I think the social aspect is extremely important, mm-hmm. and the the opportunity to learn. Yeah. Uh, we have some very good photographers. Some of our members are extremely good instructors. And the instructors, the people that are instructors are usually the kind who are always trying to learn something new themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity to have someone that's good at translating uh, what can be a difficult process or di- difficult concept into something that other people can do. Uh, adults learn best by doing. And someone thinks up something new, it's good to have some hands-on doing 
by someone that's figured out all the tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it could be, well, something simple, well, simple now would be like image stacking or building panos. Mm-hmm. You know, not too many years ago, that, that, was, that was not simple. Agreed. Before yeah. Photoshop and Lightroom got on board with that, building a pano was a Painful. real pain. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you you learned to love your tilt-shift lens. <laughs> but I think that people are attracted to that. People like to see their pictures yeah. against or with other people's photographs. And I think that that has kept our print competition going. Yeah. Uh, it's unusual from what we've heard for a club now to have print competitions. And um, that is still very strong with this club. Yeah. It's and expensive proposition. It's expensive. You've got to either, you know, either sending your prints out because typically sending them to Walmart or Costco don't cut it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sometimes you get a good one, but um, so you've got to take it to someone that knows how to print or you learn to print yourself, which is another whole can of worms. Indeed. But you know, that the camera club is really why we learn to print ourselves. So we have learned a lot and we've spent a lot of money along the way because of it. Um, but, you know, that's a real sense of satisfaction to be able to print out your print that you've only been looking at digitally. Now, it really liked print now. Yeah. In fact, the, one of the reasons we stopped photography is because Ella wasn't printing our prints anymore. Yeah. When, when she was running a color dark room, it was very handy <laughs> and very easy for us to get prints. So you just put them, she just put them in with... Put them in, in the run with the baby pictures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or hopefully not the Marg pictures, yeah. No, no. I part of the, the the upside of it was I got to print all the baby picture packages. <laughs> oh, cool! That they sold in the hospital to the new parents. But that's really cool. cute. The, the the morgue picture reminds me of one story Ella used to tell about. She was trying to color balance the uh, the <laughs> the uh, chemistry for her color processing, and she'd run this film through and take the readings on this guy's face to get the uh, color balance you're supposed to have. And it was just wrong. I mean, bad, bad magenta shift. And she was <laughs> pulling her hair out and found so printed out. printed it. Yeah. Printed, it just couldn't, couldn't get it printed. Turned out the guy had committed suicide, carbon monoxide, and he was magenta. <laughs> yeah, you, you turn red if you didn't know when the, all the oxygen is exchanged out of your body, it turns your skin because of the blood to, you look like a lobster, like you've been boiled. You can't color balance that. No. No, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) But you could do black and white, I guess. (laughs) So, but along the way, we learned a lot about color balance. Well, I, I worked in color as part of my career. So I'd been to RIT and places like that. And it was kind of nice to get back into using stuff I used to do um, with these working with these uh, inkjet printers, mm-hmm. you know, color balancing them and uh, running test prints and doing all this engineering geeky stuff. 
But it's good also to be able to help people so they don't have to do that. And that's where the camera club comes in. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, gosh, printing your own work with your own printer is like a whole, whole other animal. Yeah, but uh, once again, they've, the software kind of helps it along. And after you learn a few kind of basic things, it's not that impossible. Oh, and totally. You play with all those gorgeous papers they have. <laughs> right. That was a paper fanatic. <laughs> no, I totally get that. I I have a somewhat smaller Canon printer. It's like Pixma Pro 10, maybe. Yeah, the Pro 10. Yeah, we have that. Yeah. We have yeah. one of those. <laughs> it does an okay job. Um, I got it for printing prints, but I think if I was ever have if I ever had a space large enough, I would get one of those bigger versions. They're- oh yeah, we'd love to have that too. We have a 3880. Epson, but and that's that's a that'll print a little bit bigger than the Pro Ten. Yeah, but yeah, one of those ones where, you know, do you take a whole room up to do it? Yeah, that would be fun. But we have access. We have access yeah, to we, one of those, so we don't have to own it. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, that's or really there's cool. A, there's a, a group, a cooperative in Portland uh, called the Bakery Collective. And if you become part of this co-op, you get access to these 44-inch printers, as well as dark uh, rooms, dark rooms uh, scanner, scanners, drum scanners. Yeah. Wow. So there's a, a whole bunch of stuff that can be done that's out there. So we don't need a 44-inch printer. <laughs> See, that's an example of... Collecting your resources as a community and making it better for everyone. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that co-op idea a lot. Well, I did have one more question about camera clubs for you guys. Um, It's something that might help people with other either camera clubs or just other organizations they might be trying to figure out how to do. And that's really just like, how do you wrap your head around some of the critical infrastructure um, for a camera club, such as like your, you know, your nonprofit status and bylaws and and money management. Like, what does what does that look like for a for a, for a successful camera club? Well, we're not one of those nonprofits where people can write donations. 501C. Yeah, with the other kind of five hundred one, um, which is not all the reporting requirements and all that legal stuff you have to do. Um. Our treasury, our treasury, well, the, doing the money, yeah, that, that can be a little bit ticky. But in the day and age of PayPal and, you know, Apple Pay and all that, all of those digital methods make it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have checks. And we do have that PayPal link on our website so people can pay that way. And for uh, bylaws... Well, I have been through one session with the club of rewriting or improving the bylaws. So, yeah, it's a it's a living, breathing document. And I would say if I were getting started, I would get with two or three other camera clubs and say, would you send me your document? And, you know, you just kind of cut and paste and come up with something for yourself. Mm-hmm. So and I think would- that would be easy. What is the, I mean, for people that maybe aren't familiar, what is the function of the bylaws? Oh, they're just kind of like the general roadmap for how you're going to 
run and, you know, the rules and regulations. You can't just have people not giving you their money until February when the club starts in September. You know, you've got to have some dates and all that kind of stuff. We have to pay rent on our meeting facility, so we have to have money coming in. So sets up the structure for payment. Mm -hmm. It sets up the governance of the club. So what structure is going to be. So with our club, there's a president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, and an executive board. So the bylaws outline all of that stuff. And like these people roles and responsibilities. Roles, responsibilities. How do they become a president, for example? Uh, Well, didn't you know all you have to do now is just say you're the president and people are supposed to believe you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we won't go there. (laughs) And and as Ella just brought up the bylaws, and right at the top is the mission statement. And with our club, part of that, which is extremely important, is this is an educational club. club. And what that means for the club is all of our guest speakers are open to the public. We don't charge for anyone attending a meeting. Uh, If you attend regularly, we'd like you to throw in your dues. But if you only wanted to come to our outside speakers, we welcome anyone that wants to do that to do so. That's not usual necessarily either. So it goes back to being educational. I think that's how the one that's here in my town is structured as well. And I was always curious, how do you financially uh, sustain a club if you don't require membership? Well, we require membership. We require membership. And most people, or few people would come to every speaker and not end up joining sooner or later. But we don't want to discourage anyone from coming. And there is a grace period of a month or month and a half where dues aren't required to give someone a chance to try it out and sniff us. And they they can't enter a competition, for example. Uh, Okay. Okay. So once you start actually participating in something like that, yeah, we want you to belong. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, Wrapping up, who would you guys uh, recommend for the podcast? Who would we love to hear from? Did you want us to say all our entire list? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Well, we have kind of an eclectic list um, covering not only this country, but in one case, a person in another country. Well, perfect. Rarely. Um, So this is uh, Peggy Anderson. She's a photographer that probably no one will know about unless you're a graduate of ICP in New York City. Um, And she, we thought people would be interested in her because she's published a book of her photography. So it would be about what, you know, what what it takes to publish a book. And she does a pretty interesting, she shoots with a, a, a large format film camera and she takes pictures in Sweden of the morning dip where people go swimming in the morning and put on their families, pass down generations from generations, bathrobes when they come out of the water. (laughs) (laughs) So this is their family's summer home. Peggy lives in Connecticut and Paris now. 
but she spends the summer in Sweden. And she's a very good photographer. Yeah. She, she's, We've been on a trip with her, so, yeah, she's fun. She's fun. Uh, Andy Mumford, more people might know who he is. He's a landscape photographer from England living in... Port- Lisbon. Lisbon. Portugal. Uh, Ron Rosenstock, who lives in Massachusetts, I believe, he specializes in infrared photography and runs traveling workshops. And he's a student of Minor White at MIT. So he, he goes back with the history of photography quite a ways. Carol Eisenberg is a photographer living in Maine and Tel Aviv, Israel. She got an MFA at Maine Media Workshops here and does the most interesting composites like nothing you've ever seen. All these bright floral um uh, they're just like jewel, little jewel boxes, each picture. And we've seen her work printed you know, on a gallery, a couple of gallery walls now. Some of them are quite large. Some of them are smaller. But they are, and, and in one case, she's taking, uh, she's using one of Hanamule's newest papers, their photometallic paper, to great effect with these composites using this, silver surfaced paper as part of the image. It's quite intriguing. Mm -hmm. Harold Ross, who uh, I hope everybody knows is in Pennsylvania and he does the most beautiful, I don't think he calls it light painting. What does he call it? Painting with light. It's, it's, he's, he's uh, a master, a master of this um, still life, life painting. And he, his career was in commercial photography, and he was one of the people that would use the, oh, the thing with all the fiber optics coming out all over the place. Yeah, there was a, a machine. single light source. I can't remember the name of it now. But Harold has gone beyond that and developed his own techniques in the world of digital photography. And he's been in lens work. He's... Uh, been invited into places like the Biltmore House in North Carolina to document their rooms. And his pictures are just drop-dead gorgeous. Yeah, and he's a teacher. And you can go and study with him at his house. He has small, small, like two people at a time. And so That's you're cool. his studio and all of his elements that he has saved for the purpose of doing this. He's very intriguing. And Betty Wiley, who is, lives on Cape Cod, Massachusetts, she's a um, a woman who's really perfected landscape color. <laughs> it's just really beautiful, and it's not it's not in your face bright. It's just beautiful, soft, perfect kind of um, look for that area. And she's also a teacher and does a lot of stuff with Lightroom and Photoshop with her student base and she has led workshops. So she's really kind of a jack of all trades and does everyone well. (laughs) That's cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for, for joining me on the podcast. I had, I had a great time learning about your guys's background and, and camera club stuff. So thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having us, Matt. Thanks for an invitation. 
Well, thanks to Ella and Nap for joining me on the podcast this week to talk all about operating a camera club. I had a great time. I know a lot of listeners belong to or run camera clubs, so I'm hopeful that the conversation was helpful. I did want to remind you that you can join in on the conversation about each podcast episode over on Nature Photographers Network, or NPN. NPN is the premier community for landscape and nature photographers. On NPN, you can interact with some of the top names in the industry, get honest and thoughtful critiques on your images, and read some of the most engaging and stimulating articles on the web that relates to our craft. Better yet, listeners of the podcast can get a 60-day free trial to NPN. Just follow the link in the episode show notes. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.